Welcome to Sober Nation FM, a podcast network dedicated to sharing experience, strength, and hope so that you may continue to live your best life of recovery. The Sober Podcast Network is brought to you by Sober Nation. Do you want to live a healthy, sober life? Sober Nation is the world's leading online recovery community. Find support, resources, stories of hope, and even an online treatment program at SoberNation.com. Live a happy life. Be comfortable in your skin and join the recovery movement. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Now enjoy today's episode. The hell that I was in, I'd do anything to be better. I thought like a lunatic. You kind of just have like that little bit of hope that it will get better. You're gonna make it. This began my surrender. I am a witness of my own growth. It's a life beyond your wildest dreams, and I just have to say, it works if you work it. My story, that's what I share. You're listening to Far From Finished, a weekly podcast where we share new, real-life stories of hope and triumph, told by the people who live them. Today's story comes to us from... My name's Nicole, and my sobriety date is July 28, 2012. Um, growing up, I didn't really have that kind of environment where most people have that stigmatized view of addicts and alcoholics, where, you know, they're brought up as, you know, an abusive household, or there's drugs everywhere in the house, and it's, you know, it wasn't like that for me. I had a really supportive, loving family. Um, I was a straight-A student. I did a lot of art. Yeah, I drew, I painted, um, I did graphic design, I did a lot of sports, I uh, got to varsity in most of my sports that I did. I had a lot of friends and, you know, the it was just the area that I had, you know, there wasn't, you didn't hang out with addicts or alcoholics. You didn't really know what they were. I grew up knowing that an alcoholic was a bum that you'd find under a bridge somewhere with a paper baggie or, you know, an addict was a junkie that was living in a crack house. Like those were the ideas of what I knew of addiction. And actually in fifth grade, I was on the front page paper of the New Jersey Herald for what is your anti-drug essay? Um, I I did this essay in fifth grade saying, you know, my family is my anti-drug. I love them so much. Sports mean the world to me, my friends, my family. And I won out of the entire state of New Jersey with, for this essay. And I got my picture in the paper and everything. And, you know, I was kind of like the poster child for preventative areas of addiction and recovery where, you know, I, you know, just the don't do drugs, the DARE programs, I was in teen leadership and peer leadership and, you know, all these different things that they put me in where you would think this kid would never pick up a drink or drug if you even paid for them to. So I I grew up with a lot of friends in my area, but I had, um, I had this one friend that was like my brother, his name was Greg. And when we were in seventh grade, we found out, you know, that he was diagnosed with cancer and he, you know, like I said, I'm an only child. So when I make a friend, you're family to me, you're automatically blood. And he was one of those people. And he was a straight age, straight edge kid. He was the A student, you know, everyone knew him, everyone respected him. And he kept me in line a lot, um, you know, wanted to keep me away from all of that. He wanted me to do better in school. He pushed me to do better. But, you know, on the underlying surface, you'll hear this, and, you know, I've heard this a lot in the rooms and everything like that. Like, I, whenever I walked around in school, I could be surrounded by friends and I would feel alone. Like, I really didn't know where I fit in because I could fit in with just about everybody. I could fit in with the jocks. I could fit in with the skaters, the, you know, the goth kids, the preps, you know, the rich kids, even though I had no money. Like, I could fit in with every type of group with a smile on my face. 
and they'd accept me. So I really didn't have a certain identity. I felt like I was just kind of this person just floating around. And Greg was the only one that kind of kept me balanced. And when I was in sophomore year of high school, um, my grandparents died. My grandmother and my grandfather I was really close with. It was on my dad's side because my mom's side, her mother died when she was 21 years old. Um, so I never met my grandmother on that side. And my grandfather died when I was in kindergarten. So my dad's family was the really like the ones I was the closest with. They were like his second parents to me. And they both died when I was in a freshman and sophomore in high school. And after that, they lived in a different county than where I was growing up. And my parents decided to move into their house. We, you know, the market was terrible. We couldn't, you know, we hated our house. It was like a one room bedroom basically. And so we decided to move in, which meant I had to move schools. And as soon as I was kind of ripped from that, that protective area, you know, it, it kind of like changed me emotionally. I was very insecure. Um, even though I wasn't really, like I said, fitting in all that much in that school, I still had those comfortable people that surrounded me and loved me. And, you know, I, I dabbled here and there, I would drink here and there, but it wasn't as bad until I got ripped out of that environment um, was when really my emotional stability was just completely unstable. I didn't have those people anymore that I could call and like bike to their house or walk to their house if I wanted to. They were now like a 30 to 40 minute drive. And for a kid with no license at the time, it was really difficult to get, you know, feel comfortable where now I'm just thrown into this whole new group of people in a different county that they don't know me and we're like we're two years away from graduation. So they've already built their bonds and their friendships. They weren't wanting anyone new in. Um, and the only really way I could fit in was by going to the parties where at my old school at Kittatinny, they didn't really have parties. Like you would drink with the people you knew who drank. You had that very small group where like, oh, hey, you know, so-and-so is having a party in the woods. Okay, let's go. But these people, like, I mean, the whole class would go out for this giant party. And if you didn't go, you weren't one of them. So I started going to more of these house parties and you know, like I said, I'm from the sticks where I grew up and us drinking was having like a keg or a couple of cases of beer sitting around the woods and talking and having fun. These people were, you know, playing beer pong. They're doing flip cup, like things that I've never, I never was even like experiencing things that most people don't experience until they're in college. You know, that was my junior and senior year of high school. And, you know, I got kind of thrown into this environment where it was acceptable to drink. It wasn't like you could, you know, where you had to hide it or you only knew a few people out of your class that did it. It was like everyone did it. I was introduced to people who were selling pills out of their locker, who sold weed or who had weed on them. Um, I had people that were telling me which teachers were alcoholics. So if you came to class hungover, make sure it was for their class because they wouldn't care. Um, so this environment kind of shaped my mind saying, hey, this is more okay than where I came from. And, you know, being more isolated and more emotionally unstable and not fitting in and not having a boyfriend because, you know, at the time my boyfriend was in college, he moved, you know, he was two years older than me. So I really had no one. And I just kind of followed where the crowd was, and that was around alcohol. And I really dove headfirst into that world. My alcoholism and addiction was, you know, they always say it's a progressive disease, and it 100% was for me. Um, 
my first experience of addiction in my life um, was actually a friend of mine when I was 13 years old got hit in, uh, or hit by a drunk driver. Uh, he was run, driving about 70 miles per hour on a 30 mile per hour road and him and his family were walking across the street and he pushed his family out of the way and took the full blow. And his mom had an open casket for as like a don't drink and drive slogan. And I remember my mom looking at me and saying, I know you're going to drink. You're young. You're going to have friends. You're going to be experimenting. I understand that. Just please keep this memory in your head when you get your license, because I don't want you doing what that guy did. And really the turnaround for my addiction was the day when I started driving and my first party I went to, that memory was completely out of my head. I had that memory in my mind, like up until I got my license, really, because I would watch everyone else and say, you know, I had a friend that died. It was always the poor me. I always justified that everyone else had a problem. And I'm like, you know what, you're going to kill someone you're, or yourself. And then as soon as I got my license and those keys in my hand, I was doing the exact same thing. You know, I started having absolutely no care in the world for anyone else but myself. And, you know, it just started it kept escalating the like the more I was, you know, closer to the end of school. Um, I was further and further away from the people that kind of kept me a little more earthbound. And, you know, all I wanted was to get out. I just wanted to leave. I wanted to leave the state. I wanted to leave school. And really that's all my main goal was. I wanted to drink, use whatever they would give me. And I wanted to go to a school that was far enough away where really no one knew me and no one could tell me whether I was doing something right from wrong. And my choice was to apply to schools in Boston because that's where my then boyfriend was. And so I moved to college in Suffolk University in Boston, Massachusetts. And right before and right after graduation, I decided to take a trip to Boston to see some of the classes, you know, the dorm and everything like that. And I got news while I was there that my best friend Greg died. And that was really one of the biggest turning points to my spiral because I, I drank and used for about nine years, but my actual progression didn't take the plunge until that day when I got that phone call. Um, I got the phone call three hours after he died. His sister called me, his cousin called me to let me know what happened. And I remember I just went into a blackout. I was out of the state. My parents couldn't be there to comfort me. I wasn't near any of my friends. I just had, you know, this boyfriend of mine that at the time was, you know, very selfish, egotistical, narcissistic. You know, for me, I'm a, you know, a girl with low self-esteem and he was good looking. That's all I needed. So I had no support. So I just drank, you know, and I remember getting to a point where I was able to laugh. And I want, I remember feeling like I want to stay here. I want to stay here forever where I feel like this. And that was my mindset for, you know, that was 2009. I got sober in 2012. So from, you know, for those three years, that was 100% my mindset. If something went wrong, I didn't want to know about it. I didn't want to feel it. I wanted to be right where I felt at that moment. And I chased that for a really long time. Um, because when I moved to college, finally, Again, I had no one. Um, my boyfriend at the time started becoming abusive. So he would you know, physically abuse me, 
emotionally abused me. He would put me down, like my major wasn't good enough. And it just kept lowering that self-esteem that was already broken for me. Um, and that progression just took me down where I finally, I didn't care anymore. And I remember I came home and I got, you know, a job to work part-time and actually working in the rehab. And I remember I would just like come in as like a, you know, BT. I came in and worked on the weekends or the holidays whenever I was home. And I was surrounded by people that I didn't realize why I kind of identified with them. I was also 18, 19 years old working, you know, the youngest person there. And hearing those stories, it started kind of clicking in my head, like, you know, well, maybe I'm not so weird after all, all these people in rehab, you know, seem to feel the same way, but I don't have a problem. You know, I never came to work drunk. I never came to work high. Um, I always made it in my mind that it was a social event still, even though when it was socially done, you know, it was the timing was socially, it was still, I would drink, you know, nonstop until it was blackout. Um, I prided myself on my tolerance. I want, you know, it, I took it just like a competition, like with my sports, you know, I want to be a tomboy. I want to be faster and harder than all the guys. So I did that with my drinking. I wanted to drink harder than the guys. I wanted to drink the most. I wanted to impress people with my drinking skills and, um, you know, and that was just kind of my mindset as that went along. So when I was in college, I, you know, after leaving and coming home and working here, I actually met one of my friends that was actually up in New Jersey when I was home for a break. And he was actually in recovery. He was going to meetings and, you know, doing what he needed to do. And I thought it was amazing. And I was close with him years ago, but, you know, we never, we stopped reconnecting and everything, but he was up in the area visiting people. So I talked to him. And we started hitting it off. And he, I was telling him about, you know, my boyfriend, how abusive he was. And he just looked at me and said, Nicole, you don't deserve that. Like, no guy should treat you like that. And, of course, that's all I need for my ego. You know, all you have to do is say, you know, good girl, you're doing the right thing, and I'm all yours. And that's exactly what I did. It was the finally the breaking point where I had that strength from him to look at my boyfriend and say, like, I don't deserve you. And... I finally left that situation. And so I went from an abusive boyfriend to a boyfriend that's in recovery. And uh, that was the first sense I learned about heroin addiction because he was a recovering heroin addict. And he, you know, told me all about, you know, his usage and what he did. I never heard of heroin. I mean, I heard of it, but like, I never understood heroin. I didn't know really what it was. I knew it was bad and that was about it. And I was the drinker, you know, so I didn't, I never knew there was, uh, you know, a collaboration between alcohol and drugs. I thought if you were an alcoholic, you couldn't have alcohol. If you were a drug addict, you couldn't have drugs. I didn't know you couldn't not intertwine them. So he kind of introduced himself into my life when I was at my height of addiction, you know, for my alcoholism. I just figured if I wasn't doing drugs around him, it's fine. It's safe. And I went back to Boston while he stayed in New Jersey. And within a month, he was asking, like, hey, can I come up and stay with you in Boston? I was like, oh, fine. You know, that's great. I didn't really realize why he wanted to at a drop of a hat stay with me. But he stayed with me for about a month. And he started drinking with me. 
and I thought this was fine. You know, this is great. I have a drinking buddy. You know, this is all I want, you know, just to have someone that can identify with me, that can understand me and not look at me like I have a problem. And that's exactly what he did. You know, we went, I went to NA meetings with him, but we'd come home and we'd drink because, again, in my mind, alcohol and drugs were two totally different things. And because he wasn't sticking a needle in his arm, we're fine. And I found out towards the end of that month that he was with me that he actually had a warrant out for his arrest in New Jersey. That's why he wanted to kind of run off to Boston and stay with me. So he decides to be open and honest, and he turned himself in. He went back to New Jersey, turned himself in, and went to jail for eight months. During those eight months, um, he actually would write me letters saying, you know, be careful. Like, you were drinking a lot when I was up there. You, you know, I'm worried about you. And in my mind, it's like, really? You're worried about me? Like, look where you are. You're in jail, you know, for a drug charge. You're a drug addict. And you're really going to look at me like, and I just kept looking at it like that. Like, you know, you're the one with the problem. I have no issue. But the entire time he was in jail, I was in a blackout every single day. I was running to bars. I would, you know, at this point, I'm still underage. I would kind of flirt around with the bar managers or the bouncers. They would start knowing me. I would give them my number and, you know, act like they had a chance just so I could get into the bar. I mean, I remember not having a penny to my name and my mom was paying my rent in Boston and I would hop the turnstile for the tea, take the train to the bar. I knew I knew everybody just so I could get a free ride, free entrance and free drinks. That was how I got my things for a while until I started working at a liquor store because I'm a really good alcoholic. Um, and then I started working at the liquor store where the magnetic, you know, beeper that tells you if someone like stole something and it goes off, it was actually broken. So there was a running joke with our staff that like someone would pay in front of us, walk out and they would go off and he'd be like, no, take it. Don't worry about it. We'd all laugh. But it gave my alcoholic mind, you know, the idea, oh, hey, I can steal like $200 worth of alcohol and just walk out the door and no one would know. And I did that to kind of fuel my alcoholism. And I bounced around from guy to guy, you know, while my boyfriend's in jail and, you know, he thinks I'm the girl waiting on the outside for him because I wanted to keep that connection close. Like, again, I have, I had abandonment issues. You know, I kept wanting, I didn't want another Greg situation. I didn't want to be ripped away from the people that made me feel comfortable or close. And I wanted to keep him in my world as much as possible. No matter what I did to him, I wanted him there. And so that's what I did. You know, he would call me from jail. I'd lie and say, everything's fine. Like, I miss you. I love you. You know, and here I am getting drunk and waking up in random places with random people that, you know, that wasn't the life I was planning for myself, but I would laugh it off. I'd you know, justify it, you know, oh, it was just one bad night. It's fine. And so, you know, as my drinking progressed, um, I actually started missing more classes. I lost one of my internships that one of my professors gave me. And she pulled me aside. She was one of the only people that pulled me aside and said, Nikki, are you okay? Because you're, you're not acting right. And she could tell almost right away that there was an issue. I'm like, no, I'm just really upset. My boyfriend's in jail. You know, I miss my home. Um, just a lot of things going on, but I'm okay. And she's like, really? Because I'm looking at, you know, I looked, 
I talked to your guidance counselor and everything and the dean and we're concerned for your grades. You know, I almost had three incompletes by the end of that semester. And I just justified it as, you know, like blaming everyone else but myself. It was because of my boyfriend. It was because of my ex-boyfriend that, you know, abused me and all this stuff. It was because my parents and my job not giving me enough money to pay rent and so financial insecurities. And I would just kind of play the poor me's that everyone would, you know, either pretend to agree with or they really did fall for it. You know, I, I was a very good actress. And I remember... I finally made the decision where I was like, you know what, I'm just going to take a semester off. That way I could go back home. I could work, save some money, stay at home with my parents. I'll have money to come back to Boston with. I can clear my head. Everything will be fine. And I go, you know, I went back home and I was just doing the same thing as I always did. I'd hang out with the people that were like me. I hung out with my old friends from high school that weren't doing anything, or they took a semester off, or they took a break, they're drinking, they're using, and I surrounded myself with those people, and I remember I got a call, and this was about April 2012, I got a call from my boyfriend from jail saying, guess what, I'm free, like, come see me, great. So I had to work until midnight and then I got off and I drove the two hours down south to go see him. And I remember that whole weekend we were just drinking. We were bar hopping. I almost missed work because I didn't want to leave. I wanted to just stay in that little world of just drinking, having my comfort zone back and just being a part of, you know, what I wanted to do. And I remember You know, we were planning on every weekend I'd come down and I did it for about three weeks. You know, I'd come down for the weekend. I'd go home, go to work all week and then just repeat. I I barely slept. And his drinking started increasing a little bit um, to kind of match mine. But that's all I thought was like, oh, you're just trying to keep up with me. And I remember the, you know, I saw him one weekend and we're standing outside of this golf course and he's saying how happy he is to be in sobriety as we're both drunk and he's saying how great it is you know being sober going to probation and peeing clean and showing it you know his probation officer that he can do this he's fine and we were going to make plans for after fourth of july that i would come back again for the weekend of like the sixth uh july 6 2012 and I remember July 5th, I called him, he didn't answer. July 6th, I called him, didn't answer. July 7th, I called him, didn't answer. July 8th, I was texting him, and I saw on Facebook that he was at a party with a bunch of his friends. I saw there was girls there, there was beer, there was everything that you could think of. There was, you know, I saw powder on the tables, and I just immediately saw, like, okay, he's cheating on me. That was my first thought was he's cheating on me. I'm done with him. I don't want to talk to him. So this was July 8th, 2012. And I just remember going to bed so upset. I had, you know, some leftover stash under my bed. I was drinking alone in my room. And I just remember it was like 1am. And for some reason, I just felt the need to text him and say, I love you. You I, I know, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I did to make you upset, but I do love you. I hope, you know, we can get together soon. 
And at 9.35 the next morning, I got a call and I saw his last name pop up. So I answered. I'm just like, you know, where have you been? I've been waiting for you to like, let me know when I'm coming down there. And it was his mom. And she just goes, you know, Nikki, where are you? And I said, I'm home. Why? Just like, I'm in the hospital. Kyle had an overdose. And I said, oh, my God, is he okay? She's like, no, honey, we lost him. And it was Greg in my mind all over again. Like, he was 23 years old. He actually, um, because he was sober for so long, he drank so much into a blackout that he bought three bags of dope and shot up once and died. And they found him in his best friend's bathroom alone, and he choked on his own vomit. And his mom is a mom of divorce. And like I said, he was an only child. So she was left completely alone. And I just remember I just blacked out. I froze. I shut down. It was like my entire past just kind of came and just like punched me in the face. And, you know, for most normal people in that situation, you surround yourself with family and friends. I isolated. I remember I took my pack of cigarettes. I went out to the back. And I just grabbed whatever stash of, you know, alcohol in the house that I had left. And I just went outside and I just was drinking. And I remember my dad had to call my mom home from work saying that, you know, Kyle's dead. Nikki's not talking. And everyone was trying to get like a word out for me. And I, I just couldn't talk. I couldn't, you know, move. I couldn't think. All I wanted to do was just get to that place again where I was laughing. And that was what I was chasing. But my tolerance at that point, I could drink probably a gas tank full and nothing was going to satisfy what that I was chasing and what I needed. And that was July 9th, 2012. From July 9th, 2012 to July 28th, 2012, I literally was in a blackout every single day. Um, I remember on July 26th, 2012, my mom took me to Philadelphia uh, to see my friend Brendan to kind of get out of my head, to, you know, just have fun, maybe try to get myself out of my head and make sure everything's okay. And she thought it would be a fun trip. And instead, we left her at the dorm and we went out to drink. And we got home at like 4.30 in the morning and she just looked at him and said, where's my daughter? He's like, what are you talking about? This is Nikki. This is, she's right here. She's like, I see my daughter drunk. I see my daughter tipsy. That right there is not my daughter. And I remember she ripped me out of the dorm at like 6.30 in the morning, drove me all the way back to New Jersey. And we had a huge blowout where she said, if you take the car, I'm calling the cops. I don't want you leaving this house. You have a problem. And of course I took the car not caring of the circumstances, but, you know, they say people are put in your lives for a reason. And my boyfriend that died, his best friend was in recovery and lived right near me, the town over. And he actually called me at the middle of nowhere and said, come over, you know, just come over and talk and we'll see. And I didn't know he was in recovery. And I walk into his apartment thinking he's going to hand me stuff to get numb and, you know, be fine. And I walk in and I see NA key tags all over his billboard. And I just knew it was, you know, it was like the jig was up. 
and he sat me down. He took my keys. He took my phone. He texted my mom saying, I have your daughter. She's safe. And I'm going to keep her here until she's sober. And he kept me there for two days. I remember he said, let's go to a, like a movie. We'll, I'll take you out and get you out of the house so you're not drink, thinking about drinking or anything. And he took me to a meeting. He snuck me into a meeting and said, oh, by the way, I have to leave this first. So he tricked me into going to my first meeting. And then we went to the movies. And I just remember he texted my mom saying, she's a mess. She needs help. I'm sending her back home. Let me know if she gets home. And I remember driving. That, that drive was like the longest drive of my life because I just kept passing bars and liquor stores. And I kept thinking, like, the jig is up. I'm done. I already know what's going to happen. It's either I agree and I get help or I'm running out the door and I'm probably going to be dead, too, because just that 20-minute drive to my house, I was thinking of just driving headfirst into a telephone pole because I'd rather my mother bury a daughter that couldn't drive than a girl with a problem. Like, I didn't want to be labeled as anything but, you know, just maybe a girl who can't drive. And I got to that point where I realized, like, I was done. I was either going to die from this or I was going to at least die fighting. And I got home and I just remember crying. I couldn't stop crying. And my mom said, okay, it's rehab or a meeting. And of course my, you know, my attic brain still goes switch, you know, switched right back. And I was like, okay, I'll go to a meeting. That's fine. And, you know, I just thought that was going to be the way I was going to end it. Like, I'll just go to one meeting and I'll be cured. I actually never went to treatment. I remember because my mom's worked at this facility actually for the last 20 years. So I actually grew up in a rehab. Um, I remember I played hide and seek at Sunrise House when I was three years old. And, you know, I, I knew the deal with rehab. And of course, with me, I'm, you know, at the time, I'm 21 years old when I when it walked into the rooms of AI. Um, I was 21 years old. I had the mentality of a 12-year-old. So I was rebellious. I was against everybody. I want no help from anybody. But I, I also knew that I had to say yes to one of them. So I said yes to AI. I'm like, I'll go to a meeting. That's fine. Whatever. And it wasn't my first meeting. Um, I attempted it once before in Boston, just one meeting. I kind of did that Hail Mary, like foxhole prayer thing to God. I was like, okay, God, if you really do exist, make this meeting I walk into the best meeting ever. And I walked into an all-male gay meeting. And that was my one and only time I ever went to a meeting in Boston because I said, okay, God, got your sign. I'm good. And I just turned around and walked out. So I knew how to look for meetings. And I found one right down the street from my house. It was on a Thursday morning. And it was a 1030 in the morning meeting. And I remember it was the you know beginning of August, end of July. It was like 101 degrees out. And I'm in sweatpants and a sweatshirt with my hood up. I'm starting to feel like crap. You know, I have two days where I haven't had a drink and I'm just shaky. I feel like I have the flu. My body is aching. I'm sweating minus just having a tracksuit on me. But, um, you know, I was just miserable. I felt horrible. I was pale. When I walked into a, that first meeting of AA, I was 118 pounds. And, you know, I'm five, eight and a half. Like my healthy weight is like almost 140. <laughs> 
And I remember just sitting in those rooms and it was an old timers meeting that I was the youngest one by like 50 years. I just sat in the back of that room and I just hated everybody. I was just basically growling at anyone that even would look at me the wrong way. And everyone was so happy. They were smiling. They were hugging each other. They were shaking hands. They were like, you know, they were loving life. And I was envious of that. I was really jealous that these people wanted to live where all I wanted to do was make the pain stop, whether it was with, you know, death or getting high again, because I couldn't take how I was feeling. And the whole time, you know, the meeting was an open discussion meeting. So everyone was telling how great they feel. No one was talking about the pain that I was feeling. So I didn't identify with anybody. And I'm just sitting there waiting for the hour to be over because I knew my mom was going to pick me up. So I couldn't go anywhere. And I remember the very last speaker, it was like two minutes to the end of the meeting. And this woman raised her hand and I was like, damn, we had two minutes left. You couldn't have done it earlier. I'm sitting there not wanting to listen. And all of a sudden I hear a younger voice. And it was this woman that was 26 years old. She had almost five years sobriety. And she literally told my story, everything from only child to being raised by a loving family, not having any addiction in her family, um, being an alcoholic at a young age, getting sober at 21, her boyfriend dying in an overdose. I mean, she literally bullet pointed my story and I was entranced. I was, I was completely fixated on her. It was like just me and her in a room. That's how I felt. And there was like 50 other people there. And I was dumbfounded. Like, how did she know? And I remember at the end of the meeting, I walked up to her and I was like, did you talk to my mom? She just started laughing. Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you literally told my story. Did she like pay you to be here to keep me here? Like, what? I don't know what the deal is with this whole thing. But like, did you talk to her? And she just smiled and said, keep coming. It works if you work it. And I was like, bull, but okay. And I was just amazed. And I wanted to like see her again. I wanted to like prove that this woman was paid by my mother to tell my story. So it made me keep coming back. I actually went to almost every single meeting in that area every single day. And it was kind of like I was the queen of fake it till you make it because I didn't, I still didn't think I had a problem. I was really hoping those meetings were going to justify why I didn't have a problem. Like I was thinking if I went to enough of these meetings, I could take notes and I could bring them back to my mom and show like, look, these are all the other people and this is me. But every single time I went to the meeting, I heard someone new share and they shared how I was feeling, what I was feeling, what I was going through. And I hated it. I was so mad at myself. I was mad at the world at the time. And I had this weird relationship with AI because I was so mad at them for like making me feel this way. But I was so like, so happy at the other end that like these people are me. You know, it was a new high to chase. It was a new feeling that I've always been chasing where like, I always wanted to keep one person with me at all times that made me feel comfortable. And finally, I'm surrounded by people that get me. They get that what I did wasn't 
as bad as some of them or they got where I was at at the time. They didn't have to ask me how I was feeling. They could just look at me and knew. And it was so nice to feel that like kind of welcoming feeling and not have to say a word. I have had the biggest roller coaster life I could ever have imagined um, <clears throat> because you know, my, I, I've learned the hard way that drugs and alcohol were never my problem. It's me. It's me with the problem, and it always has been. I mean, I can quit, you know, I can, if there is a God up there, like on a big fluffy cloud that could suck up all of the drugs and alcohol off the world, I'm going to find a way to meet the high that I want, whether it's sex, relationships, gambling, shopping, um, you know, anything like working out sports, you know, I will find an addiction that will, you know, kind of like make me happy, you know, satisfy me. And I had to learn that the hard way. It took a while for me to kind of figure that out because in the beginning of my, you know, recovery, I'm, like I said, 21 years old, mentality of a 12 year old. Like I'm basically prepubescent in my mental state and I just lost a boyfriend. I had no friends, I had no drugs, I had no alcohol, so what am I going to do? I replaced all of that with finding a guy. That was my initial, like, this is what I need to do. And that was my main goal in my early recovery. It was the worst goal I could possibly ever have thought of. Like, I, you know, we always laughed that, you know, no rehab romances because, you know, and everyone kind of poo-poos. They're like, oh, why not? We're perfect for each other. Yeah, but, like, I did it in AA. Like, I did AA romances. And when I was 80 days sober, I met someone that was kind, and he was quiet, and, you know, he didn't, you know, make me feel less than he kind of was like my equal. He had six months more sobriety than I did. So I thought he was amazing. And, you know, I found out within three weeks that I was pregnant. So when I was celebrating my 90 day sobriety, I found out I was pregnant from someone that I was barely dating. And, you know, I had this sponsor at the time that was really hippie. She was like a hundred percent hippie, like owned a wolf mix dog. Like she had tattoos, dream catcher. She was, they called her guitar girl. Like she was really, you know, like one of those spiritual nature childs. And she told me like, well, it could be a sign and, you know, believe in all the signs. And so that's what I wrote on because I didn't know anything else. I didn't know how to live sober. I didn't know how to be a mom at all, but I just trusted in the people that I talked to that saw this as a good thing. And, you know, I, I had to deal with that. So in early sobriety, like it's funny, my sobriety dates, July 28, 2012, my son was born July 10th, 2013. So he was born like less than two weeks before my one year celebration. And that one year was probably the rockiest one year I could possibly ever imagine. Um, I was really just kind of coasting along recovery, like in the sense of the terms, like I didn't really, I wasn't really working the steps. I wasn't really calling my sponsor. I was going to meetings, but I wasn't really doing anything else. So when I had my son, you know, that whole having depression, and anxiety at the end of your addiction and early recovery, like it hit me with the postpartum depression. Um, I isolated a lot 
when I, after I had my son, it was really hard for me to get out of. And, you know, I, I kind of fired my sponsor right before I had my son. So I had no one. And here I am in this relationship that I barely know him because that was the decisions I had to make. Um, and, you know, that's how my life was. I just felt like I was stuck. Like, this is where I'm at. You know, I loved my son. My son is probably the greatest thing in my life right now. But, like, I still didn't know how to be a mom. I didn't know how to be sober. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how to have, a like, a normal, like, safe, healthy relationship. And I especially didn't know how to be a mom. And it killed me because that's all I had was those negative, addictive thoughts. Like, I'm not good enough. Why am I even bothering with this? What's the point of being sober if I can't feel happy? Like I made everything like my, you have sworn I was drinking at that time. And it took me another year. In my first two years in sobriety, you would have sworn I was drinking or using because that's where my mind was. My mind was, I was a hundred percent a dry drunk. I, you know, it was hard for me to get up and the morning, it was hard for me to put a smile on my face. And I just, because I felt like I had to do this, I, you know, or it was penance for all the bad things that I did in my past. And I remember when I was about two and a half years sober was when the anonymous people came out. And I remember watching that movie and just thinking, oh my God, this gives me hope and I'm already sober. And just seeing that there's, you know, this movement of people that are, you know, I am not anonymous. I am proud to be in recovery. I'm proud to have, you know, this issue that so many people see it. And it literally pulled me out of this hole that no one else could have pulled me out of. Um, I got involved starting to do speaking commitments. I went to more meetings. I got a new sponsor. Um, and I told my story at the local college they were starting their very first addiction recovery group. So I spoke there and a woman from a recovery center heard me speak. So she invited me to come out and I got trained in a recovery coach program. They actually scholarship me in where it's normally like a $500, you know, training that they just scholarship me in because they said that they see so much potential in me. And I started feeling better about myself. I started wanting to do more. I was trained in Narcan. I was trained in peer recovery support. I was trained in telephone recovery support. I was, you know, do, going to recovery rallies. I was advocating for people. I was starting to do, you know, New Jersey recovery advocacy and going to the town meetings and writing petitions to the governors in the town hall. I got involved in the recovery high school that opened up and, you know, I was doing all these things and I started realizing like I was meeting more people. I was reaching out to more people and I started finding myself. And, you know, unfortunately for me, like, you know, the, the man that, you know, is my son's father, I decided to marry. And, you know, unfortunately, like I married him too early because I still didn't know who I was. And literally right after I got married, I found myself. I found out who I was, who I wanted to be, what I wanted to do. And I realized exactly that what I chose for myself wasn't what I wanted. And I felt really guilty about, you know, he was a good guy. He 
was supportive of me when he was there, um, you know, but we lived two totally different worlds. We had two totally different paths and back backgrounds and backstories and, you know, just even raising our son that, you know, that was different, you know, completely the opposite. And our family ties were opposite. Our friendship ties were opposite. And I started seeing that. And, you know, when I say that struggles happen in recovery, it did, you know, I've been, I started the process of going through divorce with him and custody and all that stuff and trying to literally start from the bottom up. And this was all before my four year anniversary. And um, another thing that happened was, you know, I had to go through death, um, loss of other people. I've buried almost 28 people in the last five years since I got sober, um, but also death of myself. I actually had my wisdom teeth out and it was from a dentist doing cookie cutter surgery. And he had caused several other cardiac arrests in his patients and I wasn't aware of this. And I died of cardiac arrest on April 15th of this last year. And I actually died at Sunrise House in the basement. And if it wasn't for the staff at Sunrise House and the police that were the first responders on the scene, I, they literally said I would not be here today. Um, and, you know, that was kind of an eye opener also. You know, I was starting to take the steps of separating from my husband beforehand, but that really, I don't think anyone really can understand death unless you go through it yourself. Um, even if you don't remember it, obviously most people don't remember dying, but you know, if you haven't gone through it, it's really hard to explain to someone to say, you get this kind of epiphany that you are, you are craving and thirsting for a life more than you ever did any drug or alcohol or addiction or anything. Like all you do is crave life. And that's exactly what I got. You know, I was so unbelievably grateful because they were giving my family a 0% chance of my survival. They were giving them a 1% chance if I did survive that I would, I would be a vegetable if I woke up. And, you know, they didn't realize that I am a fighter. <laughs> I've been through hell and back. I should have died more times than I could count in my life. And, you know, I'm the girl that they gave no shot to. And as soon as they were done doing their death spiel, they come into the hospital bed and find me ripping out my own breathing tube and asking for a cheeseburger. Um, because that's exactly who I am. Um, it's been a long road of recovery. Um, I now am a 26 year old single mom with a pacemaker defibrillator. Um, thankfully, it wasn't from a pre-existing condition. So I'm thankful that, you know, shortly after I got out of the hospital, I trained and ran a 5K marathon in 30 minutes. Like I have been working out ever since then. I've been going, you know, trying to get back into school to do classes, um, trying to go for my CADC to be a certified drug and alcohol counselor. Um, I devoted basically my entire life to Sunrise House because they saved my life, my, you know, third life, technically, you know, they saved me and I chime, I'm trying to devote everyone that has ever helped me in some way and pushed me along this path. And literally every single thing that I never thought could come true is starting to come true. And, you know, some people in the rooms of AA and NA, they'll say, 
in recovery, you'll, you know, things will happen beyond your wildest imagination. And most of the newcomers think that's complete BS. But I can tell you right now, that is my life today, that I cannot believe where I have come, you know, but, you know, God willing, I will have five years this July and I couldn't imagine a better life. You know, today I'm there and accountable when I have to be. I'm a daughter again today. My parents don't hate me. My son looks up to me. He loves to be around me. Like I love being around him. Um, you know, my best days are just coming home and wrestling with my son or watching, you know, stupid TV shows or playing Legos or trucks. And, you know, I got a dog I've always wanted. I have, you know, all these things. I have friends today that truly care about me. And, you know, this road of recovery is it's a painful process, but I wouldn't change my life if you paid me. In the beginning, being a mother was not helping my recovery at all. <laughs> um, you know, I was young. I was, you know, I knew nothing about anything about being a mom. And, but you know what, like my, my son saved me. I call him my sobriety baby because not only did he, you know, get to kind of be in my arms when I got my one year coin, but, you know, he keeps me sober every day. You know, even when he drives me absolutely crazy, um, there is nothing that child can do that can make me even think about picking up a drink or a drug. Um, he basically, my kid is a lot like me, which is scary <laughs> and it's worrisome for the most part. But, um, you know, becoming a mom, especially so young and, you know, I was 21. I had my first kid. I was in early sobriety, like it made me grow up. Like I keep mentioning that I had a 12 year old mentality. Like I had to be accountable real quick. Like I couldn't fake it till you make it anymore. Cause you can't do that with a child. Um, you know, like everything that I was going through, you know, just at the end of the day, knowing that he was safe and I was doing the best I could possibly do, you know, that was okay for me. And it taught me how to be in recovery, like, it, you know, the principles, the traditions of the 12 steps, like everything was what being a mother is too. like, I had to admit when I need a break, you know, um, I had to put his needs first, like I have to put my needs first in my recovery, like, you know, people are kind of shocked sometimes when I say my son comes third in my life, because, you know, I'm not a religious person. I really, you know, I never really believed in any organized religion, but I'm spiritual because that's kind of, you know, this program kind of makes you into a hippie. And I already started out being a hippie. So I'm just really like basically tree hugging right now. Um, but, you know, my spirituality and my higher power come first um, because without that, I don't have a program of recovery. And if I don't have a program of recovery, I literally have nothing that I fought to have. You know, I literally sign those papers over and lose everything. You know, I don't, you know, I don't lose everything. I give it away because when I choose what I want over the, you know, what I, you know, I need, that's when I lose everything. So if I put anything before my recovery or higher power, like it's gone. And that's one thing I had to keep in mind with my son. You know, he needs a loving mom. He needs a mom that's healthy and safe and, you know, understanding and how can I be like that if I was using or drinking? I'd be absent. I wouldn't be there. I wouldn't be the strong woman that I am today. Like, I want to be a role model for him. 
I mean, God, I've been taking him to AA meetings since he was three days old. So um, he's been there for every one of my celebrations. Uh, he's given me, you know, handed me my coin or has played with them. He, you know, understands what meetings are. He's, you know, most of his family or aunts and uncles, since I'm an only child, they're people in AA and NA. You know, they're people in recovery that I'm showing, teaching them that people who are, you know, in active addiction, they, they're just sick people that need help and that care and love. And that's all I try to do for him. And on the flip side, he has absolutely taught me patience and tolerance. <laughs> um, those are two aspects of recovery that I probably would not have learned so quickly without him. Because uh, for anyone out there with a kid, they know that there are some days where you just want to kind of ship your kid off to China one day. And <laughs> there are days where you have to learn you cannot do that. And, you know, that's, it, he helps me every single day. I mean, I have piled on more than I could probably ever take in my life in a day's work um, between my personal recovery and my personal relationships, my family, my friends, my job. You know, in one day, I'm working basically from 7 a.m. till 10 p.m. straight because I'm a mom. Like, you know, I wake up as a mom. I go to work as an employee. After work, I go to a meeting for a per person in recovery, and then I go back home and be a mom again. And, you know, working with him has actually helped me take on sponsees. You know, my sponsees can sometimes be a little bit like big babies. So when they call me crying and whining about little things, I actually treat them sometimes like, like I hear it come out of my voice, like the mom comes out in my voice. Like I have a sponsee that's 40 years old. I still talk to her like sometimes like I talk to my son, like, okay, calm down. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, so, you know, my, my son has been a huge, huge part of my recovery and my story. Like I, I couldn't imagine my life without him. Even though I didn't go to rehab, I honestly wished I did. And in my first year of recovery, there were times where I just wanted to drink or use just so I could go away somewhere because doing it alone was so hard because I didn't have those tools. I didn't have any numbers to call. I didn't have any role models in recovery that I could look up to. Like I literally started alone and had to force myself to get out there and talk to people. And even though I'm a talker, like I'm Italian, Irish, and I'm a spunk, you know, spunk and 80 kind of person. Like I love to talk when it comes to needing help. I don't talk. I shut down, put up my wall, you know, you can't get in. I'm not coming out. And you know, I, that's why I take the alumni program so seriously, because these people, like, we're literally handing you the tools. Like, when they leave the building, I'm handing them my cell phone number. Like, they can call me day or night. Like, that, to me, is something so important, because there's so many times that I felt like I was completely alone, that no one understood me. And it took for me to get sober and almost die multiple times for me to keep being reminded that I have people that love me and that care for me. And for anyone struggling, like it's so important to remember the people that die around us because and it's, as morbid as it sounds, their stories and their deaths are the ones that are keeping me sober because I still forget. I'm almost five years sober and there are days where everything's going wrong or I'm having an argument with someone or I get bad news or I hear someone that died and my initial reaction is I need to numb myself 
But today, me numbing myself doesn't work. Me talking to people works. Like, I know a lot of, like, a lot of people that are, you know, get brought up like me where I was brought up thinking that if you showed emotion or if you asked for help, you were, it was a sign of weakness. And I've learned that the greatest amount of strength comes from asking for help. Those things that I thought were weakness, that was just me. Like, that's strength. It is so courageous to ask for help. And there are so many people out there waiting to grab your hand and pull you out of the darkness. Because I thought I was alone too, but by the time I was ready and willing to surrender for my life, like I had hundreds of hands that didn't even know who I was rip me up and save me.